Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 208. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 208 you're listening to. My guest today is Manny Sanchez. Manny got his start at the Chicago Recording Company in Chicago, of course. Around 1999, he came in as an unpaid intern, and one thing led to another, and he befriended Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins and wound up working continuously on the new band Zwan that Billy formed. And fast forward to today, Manny is in Los Angeles. He continues to do music, but he also primarily does movie trailers, mixing for movie trailers. So you'll hear the whole story and more. Manny Sanchez coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Hey, the NAM show is coming up in January. I'm sure you remember me mentioning that a few episodes back. I'll mention it again. 2019 NAMM show. That's right. January 24th through the 27th in Anaheim, California. And uh, I'll be there for sure. I've already booked my uh, flight, booked my uh, accommodations, as the kids say. Also, uh, summertime NAMM 2019. Don't forget about that. That's July 18th through the 20th. That's in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a little bit smaller, but it's sure... A hell of a lot of fun. Nashville's such a great city. Great people, great food, super cool place. And believe it or not, in September 12th through the 15th of 2019, there is going to be an AM show in Russia. That's going to be a little bit of a commute for me. I don't think I'll make it, but um, yeah, they're doing, uh, looks like it's NAM and Music Mesa in Russia, September 13th through the 16th. We'll talk more about that as uh, the year progresses. Hell, it ain't even here yet. So, so yeah, NAM 2019. If you're going to be there, uh, shoot me a message. You know, I roam around the floor every single day. I am a glutton for punishment. I know. A lot of people get really tired. I get super energized from it. So, um, yeah, find me. We'll, uh, we could sit and have a coffee, you know, if there's time to do so. And, you know, I got to remind you, if you just listen to the show through your podcast aggregator you're probably not actually going to the website i'm going to encourage you go on over to the website workingclassaudio.com some sponsor links there's there's some uh, recommendations from myself things i've tried things i use and there's some bonus content as well so yeah check it out workingclassaudio.com most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You m might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, we got to quit messing around. Manny Sanchez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Manny, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Very interested to hear your perspective on uh, this crazy world of audio that we we run in. Your time started out, if I'm correct, at Chicago Recording Company as an unpaid intern. Uh, yes, that's true. Let me say thanks for having me on. And uh... Yeah, I, I, I went to college and got an English degree. I was in bands all through high school and college, and I messed around with recording a little bit. I thought eventually I'd be a teacher or something. I, I just was kind of lost and didn't really know what to do. I moved back to Chicago after college and ran into an old classmate of mine who was uh, an intern at CRC. You know, he made it sound like a really interesting gig, and he's like, I could probably get you in there if you want. And I, I thought it was a pretty big, exciting deal. So I had a job at the time just working with my cousin doing the most bland thing, uh, title insurance. <laughs> just like, <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, it had nothing to do with anything I'd ever learned, but it was a job. I kept that job, but then I started working 20 hours a week at CRC. You eventually became an assistant for the last Smashing Pumpkins sessions. Uh, before they took their first hiatus. And your your bio says that you befriended Billy Corgan. Tell me about your, your interactions with Billy. I'd started to kind of learn, you know, the engineering aspect from 
the very capable engineers at CRC while I was there, kind of being an intern, but also kind of spending every all my extra time on sessions as I could. Yeah, I, I got put on as it was just the third, so I was mostly like the runner on uh, on that session, and it just happened that. Billy was having some girl problems. I was having some girl problems. We we both just connected on that level and became friends, and it snowballed from there. Wow. <laughs> all of her girl problems. Oh, pretty much all of her girl problems, yeah. And we just, we got along, you know. He, Billy, when he wants to be, can be very personable and easy to talk to. So he formed this, this band, I remember this, when he formed Zwan. He was working with Bjorn Thorsrud, you got involved in engineering the demos for the band. Yeah, you know, I had uh, worked a little bit with Bjorn, with Billy on a couple projects in the interim after the Smashing Pumpkin session and continued to get along. And then out of nowhere, I just remember getting a call. I was like asleep or something. It was like 11 at night or something. And I'd had a long day and it was Bjorn and he was like, Manny, uh, Billy wanted me to call you. He's put together a new band and he wants you to engineer the demos. I had been playing around with recording bands that I knew, like After Hours at CRC, but like I was wholly unprepared for this task <laughs> when asked to do it. I just started to learn Pro Tools. I wasn't even, I was not even close to learning Pro Tools as I know it now. I was comfortable with analog tape. And so I, I asked Bjorn, I'm like, I don't know, man. Like. The only way I can do this if he's willing to do the demos to analog. And Bjorn was like, okay, I will ask him. <laughs> and he asked him and he was all for it. So what can I say, you know? <laughs> wow. What did you learn from Billy? I think he really enjoyed the fact that he could be a mentor to me. And he kind of took me under his wing in that way. And he, he is so capable and able to run a session as a producer and kind of guide the engineers to what he wants. It was helpful to me because, you know, it's not as if I was going into a situation and uh, a player had no idea how to get a good tone out of his instrument or, or, or was lost on kind of the way he should be playing a part. Like Billy knows all these things and knows them backwards and forwards. So my job was really just to try and not make any technical mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> because he laid out everything for me like the, you know he knew mics that he preferred he knew guitar and amp and cabinet combinations that he preferred he knew compressors he wanted to use like i, I mean it was basically like a, a a college of engineering one that i never took you know because i never had any formal training so this kind of was was my engineering college. What an opportunity to have, to have somebody with that experience kind of mentoring you along the way. You ended up working solely for Billy. So what, what happened after the release of the first Zwan record? Once they asked me to record Zwan, he basically said, hey, you know, we're not gonna do all this at CRC, so you need to take a hiatus from there or a leave of absence and just come work for us. Because we did a bunch of it at Pumpkin Land, which was a studio space that kind of he had had as a carryover from the Pumpkins days with tons of his gear and kind of setups for recording. So we did a bunch of it there and at Electrical Audio, Steve Albini's studio, and then finished it at CRC. I had to take a leave from CRC and just go work for him. And when the record finished, which was, it was nine months, with no days off. 
seven days a week, 16 hours at least a day. And, th and then we added like a couple after that just so the engineering and producing crew could kind of feel normal and play video games or drink or whatever <laughs> because you become kind of a zombie. I was afraid to talk to people who weren't inside that circle of people that were working on that record because I just I didn't know how to interact with other people after that time was over because that's all I was interacting with. It's, it's, it's a really interesting and weird experience. What do you think that that does to a person? positive or negative in retrospect there's a lot of negative aspects i see with that experience if i had been a seasoned engineer that knew 100 percent of what i was doing and kind of was already set in my career i probably would have seen this as egregious the the amount of time we were spending and the amount of dedication that he required it's not like we were working all the time and it's not that we didn't have fun or moments where we were relaxing it was basically based on Billy's schedule. So if Billy wanted to relax, we could relax with him. If Billy wanted to play video games, we could play video games with him. But it was, if Billy wanted to go on an outing, we could go with him, you know? But it was not like, okay, guys, just take a day off. You guys have had a hard one. It was like, okay, well, Billy's doing this thing, but you guys got to come in and figure out all this other stuff that we got to do to prepare for the next time he comes in. So he wasn't there all the time. And we weren't working all the time, but it was basically the only thing that I could focus on or do for a very long time. And at the time, I justified it because I, I learned so much. I was, I was learning from great guitar players. You had Billy, you had Matt Sweeney and, from Chavez, and you had Dave Pajo from Slint. These were all like great guitar players. And I was working with the greatest guitar amps and gear that you could possibly imagine and had so many opportunities to come up with interesting tones. So it was just such a, a great learning experience. And I definitely would not be, I wouldn't be the engineer that I am today without going through that boot camp. I would love to have met you and seen where you're at skill wise at the very beginning of that and then talk to you again at the very end of that. I bet you became a total badass in that time. It's really hard to say, but I definitely came out of there knowing a lot more about how to be a good engineer and a good producer after having that experience. It, it is interesting when making records, no matter what side of the glass you're on, if you have an intense interaction for an extended period of time, it seems that on the other end of that, it either makes you or breaks you. Yeah, I mean, I guess one interesting thing about that, I really learned from Billy that a beat is not just a singular moment in time per se. And the front end of a beat and the back end of a beat, even though it's a very short mathematical period of time, there is a ton of time in between the front to the back of it. And he was always so concerned about whether or not the guitar players were playing on top of the beat or the way that he likes it, which is a little bit behind the beat. He wanted basically everybody to kind of lay back so his leads could be a little ahead of the beat to stand out more and his vocals as well. Like within that singular amount of time, he had the way that he wanted the songs to play out in the mix, in the mix arena already figured out. And it was not based on whether or not the guitars were louder or softer or the bass was louder or softer, but where they were in the timeline to give them their own space which is something that I still, to this day, when I'm with a guitar player and I, and, and I feel like they're pushing too hard or 
I, I just say, hey, you know, the only element that's going to be heard when this track goes, if you, if you play this way, is going to be you because you're stepping over everybody else's rhythm. You're, you're pushing it too hard, you know, or, I, or you're laying back too much and you just sound lazy. It's, it's such an interesting thing to think about that when I, originally, you know, because I had learned Pro Tools by the time that record started after the demos were done all analog. And in Pro Tools, you know, you start looking at these sessions, which are on a, a grid. It's set to a perfect tempo, and you're thinking like, hey, okay, this is in time because it's right on the beat. Now, that meant nothing. I could not look at any waveform and be like, okay, this is how Billy wants it, because it was all based on his perception of how it felt against everything else. So it's like grids be damned or out the window because it has nothing to do with that. It's how all the elements kind of connect together within the timeline. Now, after that, you built uh, Ivy Lab Studios in 2004, uh, which started out in, in a, a family friend's building in Wrigleyville. That's true. Yeah, I, I had an opportunity. I had worked shortly uh, after leaving Billy. I had worked shortly at a studio called Gravity Studios on North Avenue run by Doug McBride. And during that sort of year-long experience, I realized that the only way... I'm really gonna, you know, ever possibly get ahead in this business is is to have my own space, you know, because I, I started seeing like, okay, well, Doug is charging X amount of money per day for the bands that I'm bringing in, and he's only paying me X amount of money per day to engineer. It's like, I'm never gonna be able to save any money doing this at all. <laughs> Especially since like, what I really wanted to do at the time was just record local bands, you know, I, I had I'd kind of had my taste of the major label culture and I was immersed in the Chicago music scene so I just wanted to record as many of the bands that I liked as possible. So I had friends that basically had a space in the basement of this building. It was an old vault like from the early 20th century and ended up being like a great space to build out even though there were some living spaces and offices above it because there was three feet of concrete around this vault you could do anything down there and not it you wouldn't hear it you know super loud bass rigs would get through to maybe the the floor above us which we had as offices for the studio but never really had any trouble with noise so it ended up being a great place and a, a one of the most fun parts of my entire career was putting that place together but that that place was eventually lost to a foreclosure is that correct yes my my friends that owned it who had good intentions also weird story had they owned a rooftop baseball club at Wrigley so they had you know in the outfield of Wrigley field in Chicago where the Cubs play and they still do some of it but it used to be that all the buildings surrounding it would have you know they'd have stands and you could watch the games that way. Now the city started to crack down on this and started to take money away from the rooftop owners because, hey, you know, it's their product that they're profiting off of. And my friends became victim to this in a sense because they started losing money on the baseball club. And what they didn't tell me is that they started using the rent from the building that I was in from the tenants that were there to pay for the legal fees for the baseball club. And that is illegal and it's a big no-no. So one day I got a, a letter saying, hello, 
your building is in receivership, which means it is not currently being run by the owners that you know. And this is where you're going to uh, send your rent money from now on. And also, by the way, we're going to reevaluate the terms of your lease and see if your rent needs to be increased or decrease or, or what. They basically came at us with uh, over a, like a $3,000 increase in rent. We had two rooms, one that had the ability to track full bands and then another overdub suite in the tracking room was $600 a day with engineer. The B room was 400. And in order to get rent up to, you know, it was upwards of 6,500 at that point with the addition. It's just, it was, it was impossible. So, and I thought it was going to close, you know, it didn't, didn't turn out that way. We ended up moving to another location in Lincoln Park, which and taking over a studio that used to be called Studio Chicago that was run by a guy named Al Ursini. It looked like a great opportunity and we partnered with the group that owned the building and the studio remained there for a long time. Just this past year, it looks like it's going to close because our partners decided they could make more money selling the building than housing the studio. Even though the studio has been doing fine this whole time, we never, you know, never got into debt. We employed in upwards of, you know, six to 10 people at all times, you know, a, a busy recording schedule. It's it's a real testament to how much the landscape has changed as far as the ability for a bigger studio to exist in this culture of streaming and home recording. The amount of just the business things that you learned or became aware of, I'm sure that that, that in itself was an immense amount of information and really shaped your thoughts about like, you know, what to do moving forward. Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, it was like trial by fire everywhere, you know, like, uh, you know, I didn't go to school for any of it. I, I mean, all I wanted to do was really make records. And I think a lot of people have that ambition when they want to start a studio and you learn pretty quickly that there are a lot of practical things you need to figure out in order to make it even sustain self-sustainable as maybe not even profitable. We're just talking about sustaining the the people that can you need to employ to keep it all going. And it was a, a great experience. I thought basically that I would just walk away when we lost the first building, but my engineers and some of my partners at the time really wanted to keep it going. So they did and we did and I, I remained a part of it. And it's a shame that it's it's finally coming to an end. But I mean fifteen years is a pretty good run. Does it change your desire to want to partner with people in situations like that? I chose to go along with partnering with the company that owned the new building, the building that we that we moved into for the second location, because all the guys that were working there were really gung-ho about doing it. I had already had my eyes set on moving to Los Angeles, and they told me, you know, that they would do the things that were necessary to kind of, you know, pick up the slack since I would be leaving and wouldn't be covering the business day to day. And to their credit, they 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 did a great job, the internal team from the original IV Lab. Now, our friends that we partnered with, they were definitely music lovers and in it for the right reasons. But just within those, you know, four or five years that we were there, they could see the writing on the wall. They just kept getting offers for the building that were just it was stupid money because real estate in Chicago is just, especially in the Lincoln Park area, is just exploding. And it just got to a point, I don't blame them, it just got to a point where they, they needed to take that money, you know. Their business had, had, had mostly moved remotely 
and they didn't need this big huge space to have you know offices and this cool studio thing that was with it you know like it, it's a shame that it all ended up the way that it did but it's it's probably for the best not to go down a rabbit hole but i wonder if you know in city environments new york chicago los angeles for that matter what ultimately with with people p paying so much money for real estate and then of course the expectation is is the businesses that in in are inside those buildings have to pay outrageous rents so in the world of the studio, do you think I'm off base when I say that in the future, most studios will be run out of people's homes or and or backyards and zoning laws will change to help support that? I hope zoning laws change to help support that. And I completely agree that that's what the recording community will be. It just makes more sense to, you know, if you have the means to have a home and you can designate space of it to do the audio work that you want to do, it makes the most sense because having an additional place, considering how much how expensive property is in the cities, it's just it's not it's not feasible, especially considering that as even from the late '90s to now, I mean, studio rates have probably gone down from what a day was at the end of you know 1999 to like. To today, you know, and, and because you can't, you you aren't able to really increase the amount of money you can charge. It's got to give somewhere, and I, and I think that the reason it's going the home route is that it just it's easier for producers and engineers to have a space inside their home because you know one mortgage payment is doable, two not so much. It's a fascinating world, and I, I continue to monitor it and think, what will ultimately happen here, and how does that shape the tools we use, you know, and the software that 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 you know musicians are using or or hardware they're using, music production in general. So your situation uh, just raises e just even more questions for me. It's not easy out there. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. 
Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Back to your story. So you uh, eventually left Chicago. You moved to Los Angeles. If I'm correct, that was because of uh, Psy of Gangnam Style because... (laughs) Because because of a, a of a mutual connection there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, through my work uh, with Fall Out Boy, I met their former tour manager Dan Sue, and he became a good friend. And he at the time was working for Scooter Braun, who's a big manager in LA. And his gig, because he knew how to speak Korean, and he's Korean American himself, he had been tasked with managing side day to day right as he had you know right as the as Gangnam Style had hit and become huge and he was uh Sai was in the U.S. to bask in his hit glory as well as try and make some new music and he was burning through engineers like left and right and Dan called me and he was like listen this guy's not easy to work with, but like, I know you can do it. Like, would you want to come out? We'll pay you whatever you want. Just come out here. I don't know when the gig's going to end. <laughs> and I was, I mean, it's impossible to say no to because, you know, here I'm sitting here, uh, I'm faced with my studio closing. I have prospects for another studio, but I know that it's just going to be more overhead and harder to make a living there. So I said, okay. Let me do it. And I came out to LA. That was probably early, it was late 2012 or early 2013, and got to work. It was a good gig in a sense that it lasted for, you know, about six months or so. And, you know, they paid me every day, even though we didn't work every day. But he's a difficult person to work with. He's not, you know, he, he's not a, a bad guy, but he loves smoking, as as I learned a lot of uh, Koreans do, and because all of his entourage smoked, and you know, we're in you know East West Studios and the Village and all these great places, and because dude is dude, they just let him smoke. The environment was just so disgusting and so brutal, you know, for long periods of time. You know, just I would go home every night just stinking of cigarettes and kind of hating my life, but also understanding that like this was, you know, my gigs could be worse and my pay could be worse. And I just kind of sucked it up. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it it was cool. There were things, there were moments about it. I got to record Steven Tyler. It was super fun. Uh, Cy is a huge fan of Steven Tyler and uh, he just, he wanted to try and get him on a song. So, you know, their people contacted his people. And next thing you know, we're in the studio with Steven and Cy is just fawning over him. And uh, they're trying to work on stuff, but it, you know, wasn't, you know, we're not talking about any like high art being made. This is like a dance song trying to get Steven Tyler to sing a hook or something. And it was really great. He's great. You know, Tyler was an awesome performer. He was he was great in the booth. He was super friendly. It was a highlight of the time that I spent with Sai. And there's a few other moments like that during the time working with him. But for the most part, it was just kind of like in-room, cigarettes, kind of, you know, not communicating very great because of the language barrier with Sai, and just kind of like getting through it. Interesting. It's like you're getting paid well every day, being in the studio, and yet 
something as toxic as cigarette smoke just really can psychologically take it down several notches. When we started the studio, they hadn't, in Chicago originally in 2004, they hadn't even passed uh, like no smoking in buildings or restaurants in Chicago. I mean, it, that, so there was, I remember Smoky Studios. And at CRC, I think even still to this day, if you're a big enough artist, they'll let you smoke, which is, seems disgusting to me. But, you know, I was happy when that law came for the studio because I was like, okay, great. No more cigarettes. It's impossible to say no to weed, and I'm fine with that. But, but the cigarettes were gone, and uh, it was a good day. Well, so that was your your big introduction to Los Angeles. Uh, how how many years have you lived there now? Uh, it'll be six come January. And in that time, you have diversified a bit into the world of TV and film. Is that right? That's true. I you know I've been kind of just freelancing here and continuing to work with my longtime clients here, like Fall Out Boy and Humphreys McGee, it didn't matter where I was living to work with them. And so I had work and I, you know, I've always had clients who were sending me stuff to mix, but I just thought, you know, hey, there's gotta be some other places here that I can use these same skills and actually make some money. And so I started to look into TV and movie trailers and, and, and kind of the nuts and bolts behind working on them. And I had some friends who were sound editors and sound designers and basically just went to them and I said, hey, like, you know, do you think it's a big deal? Do you think it's a huge leap to go from only really working on music and music production for years and years and years and then start to do some other work in TV and film? Like, is that a big deal? And all of them were like, oh, music's the hard thing to do, so this should be easy for you. And <laughs> I, I was terribly frightened of, of the TV and film world because I thought it was like things to me that I'm like, I had no idea. Like, I need to worry about broadcast levels. And uh, I just, there were so many parts of the, of the lingo that I didn't understand. But luckily, I had some good teachers and started to kind of educate myself on, on how to do it. And, you know, I found an opening at a cable network that was willing to give me a shot on like a freelance basis, mixing trailers and their marketing material. And it, it ended up working out. Uh, it was almost uh, almost four years ago. And you know, since getting that gig, which I still do today, I've been able to find other gigs in that field just because of my newly enlarged resume of work. It's been great because it's given me flexibility to work on the music projects that I really want to work on as opposed to taking every single thing that came my way, which is how I used to live. It's also kind of given me an ability to look to my future and say, hey, you know, like I can be an audio worker and have time for the things that I want to do creatively, but I, I can also make a living and get some savings and savings. I mean, it was non-existent for the first, you know, over... 10 years of my career, like there was just no such thing. It just, it was always living paycheck to paycheck. And it just kind of opened up a, a bunch of doors for me, especially living in, in LA, which is a lot more expensive than Chicago. It was helpful to find some outlets to kind of keep me working in audio and not having to go find another job after only working as a music producer and engineer for so many years. I, I'd be curious to hear your advice to those who are in music only 
and might have a mental block to say that, oh, I'll never go and work in these other audio industries uh, because I, I just, I want to be, you know, I want to be a producer or a mixer or I, or I only want to master or whatever. What are your words of wisdom to to those people who are feeling that way, but that are struggling financially? My thought is that I think the, I think the audio schools of the world are, are churning out a lot of people that might be in this position. And it's really unfortunate because there's not a lot of work out there just in music or just in mastering or just in the thing that you might want to do. It's helpful to open your eyes up and see that, you know what, these skills that you learned in school or these skills that you've been developing that you think are just helping you in your music career, like they can be used in other ways and they can be very profitable and they can allow you to do the things you really want to do in audio. And I wish someone could have kind of knocked that into my head when I started as an intern, because when I went to CRC, there was, okay, basically you can work in music or you can work in post. Like you had to choose what you want your internship to focus on. Cause they had both at, at CRC. And I was like, of course I'm going to music. That's where the cool kids go. Like there was no, I didn't like, there's like the nerds and the geeks are in post and the cool people and the people I want to hang out with as a 20 year old are in music. Somebody should have said like, Hey Manny, guess what? That music thing, like it's a lot of fun and it's a ton of interesting work if you can get it, but it's the same skill set to do some of this other post work. That's going to like, pay more bills and there's actually like a, a whole network of businesses set up to actually fund the, that work uh, that the bottom's not going to drop out of because of music streaming. So you should learn some of that too. <laughs> Nobody told me that. I learned the hard way. And I would hope that kids that are coming out of school today and that are young audio workers, that they at least know that there's many things they can do with those skills. And it doesn't always have to be like the, being the next, you know, great producer or engineer or mixer. I was on a panel recently at Music Expo San Francisco and brought up the, the, the fact that there's a lot of companies that you wouldn't think you would ever want to work at as an audio professional, but those companies have internal departments for AV work, not just, you know, doing slideshows or PowerPoint presentations, but literally generating their own podcast, their own internal training videos. And there is a ton of audio work to be had in those companies so that that's a possibility as well. Yeah. And I think especially with the podcast medium, I have seen a lot more opportunities come up that didn't exist years ago for to engineer for podcasts and to edit for podcasts. And I think it's, you know, that's something that all these young kids need to also look at because it's actually an, an area that requires an engineer that is actually expanding at an exponential rate. There's so much more to, to, to audio work than just music. Now, that said, what are some of the, the things to think about if you are going to want to stay in music? What are some of the uh, strategies in order to stay whole? Well, I think you need to keep your overhead low at all costs. So whether that means finding a situation where you can, you know, basically use the space in the place that you're living to do a lion's share of the work 
so you aren't running out of studio all the time because the money for studios, like that money's gone. Like band comes to you they, and they want to work with you. They, get, they might have money for you. They're not going to have a lot of money to pay for a place. So as much as you can do on your own in your own space is great. And if you can limit your use of a bigger studio that can track drums or a band to, to, to basically the, those few basic tracking days, that's really going to help you to survive. I just think that there's just not a lot of money to come to you, the engineer, if you have to use that money to get spaces to do your work in. And if you don't have a space, then uh, of course there's remote rigs and rehearsal facilities to go to, to try to get your basics down. Yeah, any lower budget option to kind of just get you somewhere where you can continue to work on the things that you need to work on to, to get better, you know, because the only way you're gonna get better is to just do it. I mean, the, the one great thing that I often say to people about this profession is that there is not a day that goes by that I don't learn something new and that I don't improve upon something that that I, I wasn't as good at the day before. I recently had to revisit a record that I did almost 15 years ago because for a reissue, the band wants to kind of remix it and, and put out you know a, an alternate version, kind of like the Pearl Jam 10 thing. And it's so interesting to go back and see my work from that long ago and see the choices that I made and then like see how the technology and everything that has changed since then and shapes your ability to do things now. Like it's just, it's night and day in my perception of where I was then and, and where I am now. And it's amazing. I mean, that's one of the beauties of the audio profession is just that you can learn something new and exciting every day and apply it to your current work. And I love that you have that perspective because I've said it many, many, many times here on this podcast is that if you think you're the smartest person in the room and there's nothing left to learn, then you should just go home because there's guys like you out there who have a ton of experience, but are still learning new ways of doing things and, and learning new lessons and learning how to you know shift gears and change course when you need to. I found that the people that are most successful have that same attitude. People I've worked with that are my way or the highway kind of guys, like I, I don't see them or hear their names anymore. They're gone. <laughs> you know, you, you have to be able to adapt and, and get better because it's just not only are your ears getting better consistently over time, and your ability to perceive sound and, and, and manipulate it. But the tools around you are also always changing. So how, what you use to kind of deliver a final product is also changing. And if you're not keeping up with that, like you are definitely losing out on possibilities. Any audio mentors that you've had in the past that are still alive, are they still working in audio? I mean, a lot of them are at least in some capacity. I mean, my first boss uh, at CRC is a guy named Hank Newberger. You know, he doesn't do sessions anymore, but he runs a company called Springboard Productions that basically do cover all the audio and video for all the major festivals that, that tour around like Coachella and Bonnaroo. It's nice, even this many years later, he hires me to go out and do live mixing for webcast for those festivals. And I'd say like, 
a lot of people I know that did mentor me might not exactly be doing the same thing, like music production and, and engineering, but they're still involved in the industry somehow. Do you have a home rig that you run? I'm just on my laptop, which I can get an incredible amount of work done in this situation, especially the TV stuff. Like uh, you give me a laptop and headphones and Pro Tools and I could do pretty, and, well, and an extra monitor, and I, I could pretty much do everything I need to do for that side of my business now. For the music stuff that I do, I, you know, I have the luxury of having a 5.1 studio that I can go to that is related to one of my post gigs that has a you know really nice, set up and all the bells and whistles that I don't have to pay for and I can a b mixes there I've got studios that are owned by the fallout boy camp that I can go to and and not have to pay like I mean I've 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 found a way <laughs> to not have to have that space that I used to pay for with blood and sweat and tears every month <laughs> and still be able to do the work and I'm lucky and I realize this but somehow it's all worked out yeah and what about your in your life, uh, work-life balance now compared to the past? I used to live to work, and now I work to live. You know, whereas I started doing 16-hour days on end, on end, keep going, 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 going. Now it's, I know I kind of have my, the amount of work I need to get done laid out. I rarely, if ever, work on weekends, although I still do it. Most of my work gets done between the hours of, 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. I'm, I feel very blessed to be able to say that because it's not how it, it, it started and it, it took a really long time to get to that place. Yeah. What do you think the next five to 10 years holds for you? Well, I hope that I get to continue to work on the music that I want to work on and I continue to progress in that realm. But I also have big dreams about working on major movie trailers and big shows. I would love to mix some entire shows, may, maybe even a movie. Like I, you know, there's a lot of things that my mind has been, uh, has been opened up to since dabbling in the post-production world. And it's really exciting to me that there's just like endless possibilities with things I haven't had a chance to experience yet in that realm. Uh, whereas I will always, I know I will always continue to hone my music engineering skills and ability to mix and ability to get that guitar sound I want. All those things are so ingrained in me that they will never go away. But I just look forward to even more diversification. What's the percentage of music work versus post work? Right now, currently, I'd say that I'm about 60% post, 40% music. Okay. You know, and granted, as a freelancer, I probably, if we hundred percent is a year of work, I was probably only working 60% <laughs> and it was all music. So now I've taken 20% of that music that I don't really want to do and said, sorry, I can't do it. Save the really good music for the stuff that I can do and sustain my life by working in post. Yeah. That's nice that you have the post gig to bring in the day-to-day money that you depend on to live so that you can pick and choose the music that you involve yourself with. I'm incredibly lucky and I'm very thankful to be in this position. So you won't be taking any gigs where the entire entourage smokes? Uh, unless it's somebody I really, really, really <laughs> want to work with. No, 
Yeah, I, I think I would take a hit to my lungs for the Stones. I could spend a good long time in the studio with Keith Richards smoking over my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, you know, Radiohead calls, oh, you can do. they can do whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, man, this has been great to chat with you. Uh, will you be at NAMM? I will not. Okay. If you change your mind, let me know. I'd love to meet you in person uh, when I'm there in January. Right on. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's it's great to talk to you. Wow, what a great perspective and 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 a very uh, interesting path that you've taken. So it's good to hear it. Well, until we meet in person, thank you again. Thank you. All right, man. Later. Awesome. Thanks. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Manny Sanchez here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. And another reminder to head on over to workingclassaudio.com. Thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdell, for the theme music for Working Class Audio and our friend, Mr. Chuck Smith, for his wonderful voice that introduces us, or me, I should say. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>